right, this is Coach MJ. We're back on the Mission I'm Possible show. On this episode, you'll meet an industry icon himself. His name is Dave Crane, and he has been doing events, work with royalty, with governments. He's an advisor to CEOs and boards through all of his programs. He'll be explaining some of that and unpacking that with us today. But before we continue, I'd just like to say, First of all, thank you for coming on, Dave, and it's a real treat to have you and honor. And then thank we you. have a little clip we just want to play, just so you can get to know exactly where Dave Crane comes from and understand his world. That's incredible, hey. Dave. And I tell you, I, I know, uh, which my audience might probably doesn't know, that was just a very small fraction of the people internationally and the names like James Brown, Robert Plant. I mean, the list goes on. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis. It's incredible uh, what a career you've had. And today you're helping change lives for CEOs and others who want to up their game and speak on stage as well as become industry icons. Thank you so much for coming. It's so so kind of you to have me here. I don't know if to call you Coach MJ or, or Mike. I've always called you Mike. And yes, never it's said true. Dave. But this is showbiz, Jay, uh, Dave. So we're back on the on the coach thing. MJ is just fine. Perfect. MJ, it's great to be here. And we've known each other now for, what, 15 years, 20 years? 20 Something at long, least. Crazy yes. number. It's a long time, uh, and we've worked on the same stages in Dubai. I've been a massive admirer of your work during all this time, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for bringing me on. Uh, the honor is mine, sir. So tell us, uh, there's a lot going on today, uh, and there's a lot of noise. Uh, we've just come out of the pandemic. I have to say, the work that you did during the pandemic, where you created this, co-produced this Toilet Paper Diaries, which had more views than any other uh, program, and just incredible. Um, and of course, it was a tongue-in-cheek title that you uh, had given it because of the shortage of, oh my gosh, we're not going to have enough toilet paper. And that's yeah. those were days that we just, we thought were so surreal. And yet you you laughed it through and created that program. Tell us a little bit more Thank about you. that. Yeah, with Ernesto Badugo, who's uh, my brother from another mother, we've been together no, um, working and training speakers and and help them create their their media kits all around the world now for over twenty years. And as soon as the pandemic hit, we were chatting and we just said, "What we're going to do? Because there's going to be no speaking, no nothing. We have to do something." And what we decided to do was he just got hold of some software um, that allowed you to basically broadcast. And he said, "Well, why don't we try this? And let's just do a, a chat." So it started off with us not knowing what we were doing. I was in my office the way it was, not like this. It was literally just me looking at my laptop and talking to the laptop. Um, and we, we just started talking about how scary it was. And we decided to do it every day because we had no idea what was coming. We thought it'd be two and a half weeks and then we'd be back to normal. We'll all be vaccined and happy days. Um, but we kept it going for an hour every day. And what we, we, we didn't realize is at the time was we created a lifeline for many people who would tune into our show 
Um, as our show became more sophisticated, so we we had to find out more things that would help people. Um, we we scoured the news for new stories, and we were able to put it up as graphics and and share different things. So it became a formatted show, and we did fifty shows on the trot for an hour each day. And at the end of our fifty episodes, um, we we had a celebration show that we invited people on to speak, and we had thirty four people coming on as guests all um, giving us a, a, a testimonial or telling us what they've been up to. And that 34 people on the guest list were sheikhs, top speakers, event organizers, people who basically would have been a headliner at any conference anywhere because they weren't doing gigs. So they're all available and they're watching what, what we're doing and saying, can we join in with your stuff? So that was fantastic. I worked with Ernesto. We, we actually got up to 99 shows. We've still got one left to do. Uh, but during that process, because here's a weird thing. Imagine there's a zombie holocaust, which is not unlike what we went through at the beginning of a pandemic, at least. And your friend says, right, let's get in the car and go. We jumped in the car and went, effectively, with him in the driver's seat and me in a passenger seat. So he was driving the show all, all that period of time. I knew nothing about how to drive a show, but I knew I had to learn. So at some point we had to slow it down and swap seats or I was going to do my own thing. So um, then I started doing my own broadcast with the Speak on Stage and I notched up with the Toilet Paper Diaries probably about 200 live shows across the social media platforms, which is LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all the, all the rest of them, Periscope in those days as well. Um, and so I learned a lot about doing this. And I really do believe that the way that we Zoom, the way we interact and having a virtual studio like this is definitely the way forward. So, for instance, Mike, if I share with you that when I do the game changes, as you know, as one of our game changes, this is where I am, the coffee shop. And in the backdrop, you'll see every now and again, you'll see a, a jogger run past and cars going past. And sometimes it rains and sometimes uh, you see different interactions as that goes along. So I can easily use this as, as, as a backdrop. I used to just do my show being based in Dubai. So that was the, the set for being in Dubai. And the clouds are moving slightly. You might be able to see that there. Uh, that boat over my, court, my side here has not moved in three years. So whoever's in it is probably still sleeping or they're hiding from the government. But on a night time... This was it. Same thing, different set. And so I managed to create um, a really interesting studio set for me that allowed me to be able to interact with anybody around the world at any time of day. And I could say whether it's nighttime or daytime, I could dictate. And then even when I wanted to do some more introspective stuff, I go into my back cave. And again, this is a moving video. The light flickers in the backdrop. It, you know, I've got several of these that are really effective. And I found that when you've got this kind of technology, there's no need for you to have to do the old thing. And you know this from being in Dubai, sitting in traffic for an hour to have a 15-minute meeting and then an hour to get back home again or something like that. I don't have meetings anymore. We jump on Zoom or we don't have a meeting. And the only reason I'll meet somebody is if they've already paid for my services. And so they've decided or we have decided that's the way we're going to spend our time in the session. And it's been massively liberating to do this. Well, it is, particularly if you have a life and uh, the only thing constant in life is change. And so you've you've adapted and you've adapted well. Um, Thank you. Going back to some of these iconic people that you've worked with over the years, could you share a story, maybe a, one of the, the most memorable or one that just really stands out with you that maybe some of our guests would appreciate? Yes, uh, uh 
I'm trying to think because probably the opening of Planet Hollywood was the most iconic of everything, purely because it was at such a level that you never get. Planet Hollywood, for anybody who doesn't know, and there's no reason why you should do, was was a, it's really strange actually talking about Planet Hollywood because Mr. Beast has just opened his own burger um chain mr beast is a huge youtube influencer with 100 million followers on youtube and he opened his own burger franchise and got a hundred thousand people to turn up for the opening of it so going back 20 30 years ago the hollywood on uh the hollywood notables through whatever reason decided why don't we use a series of hotel of of, of restaurant chains selling burgers and fries and so on um and just put memorabilia in there and we'll open up a Planet Hollywood franchise around the world, but across America originally, a bit like the Hard Rock Cafe. And people can go in and enjoy their food. And the food was very nice. Um, but with the idea that maybe a celebrity would walk in. The truth was a celebrity never went anywhere near them apart from the opening. So the celebrities have been wheeled out to go along and say, wow, look at all these guys. I wonder if it's still there when I go for my next pizza. No, never, ever, ever going back again. But uh, here's a, a quick glimpse of what I experienced with the opening of Planet Hollywood. Before I share it with you, the story is I was on the radio at the time and I got a phone call saying, Dave, would you like to go down to an event this afternoon? I went, yeah, OK. So I did my 10 to 1 slot. One o'clock, I got a phone call. About two o'clock, I went down. It was the middle of June. So as you know, in Dubai, it's mega, mega heat. It's so hot. And we had to wait outside and entertain the audience for about three hours saying the big stars are coming. And... Outside in the heat, it was all set up to the big stage. We didn't really know who's going to come down. We just knew they were kind of famous, but we weren't allowed to talk about it. Um, and it, it, basically, um, we had about 5,000 people in the heat and during it until we actually brought out the stars who came up one by one with myself and the team for the breakfast show. And this is basically what it looked like. <laughs> So that was again, it was just it was surreal. Now here's something that nobody knows because people so just assume, oh wow, you were hanging around with the big boys, Wesley Snipes, Patrick Swayze, swapping stories of showbiz. What happened was we were brought in to do it, so we're doing it live. And I was working at Channel Four FM at the time, radio station, not Dubai ninety two, which was the big government radio station. So we would plug. Debate, we would say Channel 4 FM on stage and it was being followed live on TV and they'd switch it off as soon as we start talking about radio station and switch on again. So the people at home are going, what's wrong with the feed? And it was literally because we mentioned it and nobody had said to us, don't treat it like a radio station gig, just treat it like a gig. So when it was over, all the big stars went into Planet Hollywood to eat whatever burgers or whatever special uh, food that had made for them. But the guys who'd been on stage, myself, my fellow uh, colleagues, weren't allowed in. We weren't on the guest list. So I had to go home. So I went back to the bar where I'd been working as a DJ the, the rest of the time as my full-time job. And I went in and everyone was going, we just seen you on TV. Oh, my goodness. Incredible. Um, which is great. 
Um, but but it's a real, and it's not a crash landing by any means. You know what happens. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain is a little guy with a big voice, but in front of the curtain, it looks like a big monster. That's just part of the reality of, of what happens in entertainment. Um, and the next day, I went into the radio station, and our TV coverage had been of the events, because everyone was there, MTV, BBC, CNN. It was a big thing, all these guests, to go to the opening of the Planet Hollywood for the first time in the Middle East and in Dubai. And I said to the camera guys, have you got any footage of last night? And they were like, maybe. So I chased it and chased it and chased it until they gave me a VHS of it, because those were the things in those days. And I smuggled it out like that. And the footage that I shared with you then was taken off that VHS and just left on a hard drive until I could kind of rescue it and do something with it. I've never shown it to anybody. It's just been sitting there. I, why would you talk about how, how great the gigs were until years later you go, actually, it's about almost 30 years. It was, it was June 1998, 25 years. So and going happened. back, this is amazing. Going back before that, uh, Dave, uh, for our audience, just so that they understand, you were actually from the UK, born in, born in Britain, and you were a BBC journalist. Um, something happened there that uh, caused you to change your life. Could you share that with us? Yeah, I can do. Um, and it's kind of mad as well. I mean, in the UK and, and up to I left the UK at the age of 27. So I worked really hard on my career and uh, I, I worked in entertainment. I went away to holiday resorts to learn to be a, a very strong and good entertainer. And then I went to work for the BBC. I got my postgraduate diploma in radio journalism. And then I went to work at the BBC as a news as a, as a freelancer. And it's really a strange conversation that I was reticent to get into because of the simple fact that when you start talking about something like like the way you're treated, um, if you go and complain to your boss that they're, they're, they're picking on you, what happens is people turn around and say, oh, yeah, you're just being paranoid. But with this one, it really wasn't. For about three years, I worked for the BBC, worked my ass off. I got commendations for the radio stuff I was doing. I even went on a TV show called Blind Date and won it, the dating game, in front of about 20 million people. I won the Christmas show. And I couldn't get a proper staff job. And people were coming in who are not as skilled as me, jumping over me and getting staff jobs. On and on and on and on and on. Until eventually I just went, this is ridiculous. So I did Blind Date. And the station manager who just come in, who didn't like me or didn't like, let's be honest, my color, um, used it as an excuse to get rid of me. He said, Dave, it's quite clear your direction is in a different way, so you're going to have to go. Now, here's a fact. You would think that going on a TV show and becoming country famous would actually be a way of them turning around and saying, we've got a star here. Let's do something with this. Quickly. They didn't. They used it as an excuse to kick me out. So I I, I went for a number of TV show. Uh, in the days you had a VHS tape, so I sent it across to people so using snail mail. So it takes you a month to get a reply. Then you send a reply. It takes you a month to get another one. And after three months, I wasn't famous or recognizable, really, from that show anymore. And I had four big shows that said they were interested. But one by one, they all had that chicken and egg. We love what you've done. Have you done anything else? No, I've not done anything else. Can you give me something else? We can only give you something else when you've done something else. And so I had the choice of moving down to London to try and chase it up because I lived in the north of England. And in the end, I just thought, forget it. I'm off. I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to go somewhere else. So I came through to Dubai. And so I was DJing it in a, in a bar 
in the Marriott Hotel. They had a sports bar and I looked after that. And I my, my claim to fame, my one introduction of claim to fame to Dubai is when I worked in Middlesbrough, I was uh, entertaining in a, in a bar that did an all-you-can-eat-and-drink deal. £15, all-you-can-eat-and-drink, and I would entertain people and we'd all get drunk and eat and so on. So I brought that to Dubai as a, and I, I called it a 100 club, 100 dirhams, all you can eat and drink. And it was a packed out entertainment night. I was DJing. People would come and eat, drink, and they looked like the walking dead. And it was an incredible night. We had about 250 people space in the bar. We'd have about 400 people in it because people had a huge queue of people down the road trying to get in because it's such an outrageous deal. And that's what sp- turned into the all-you-can-eat drink deals that everybody uses across Dubai now and across the UAE. In fact, probably across the region. But it all started when I came to Dubai and, and shared it. So the BBC did me a massive favor because within two years of being in Dubai, I was working at a radio station that I just started up, which is 104.8 Channel 4 FM. They had a mini coup of some of the people disgruntled left and started a rival radio station. And I found myself being station manager, stepping into the gap of basically, imagine coming back from your holidays and there's no roof on your house. Well, that's what happened with the personnel. Uh, the personnel of a station, my friend Jeff Price, so I think you know Jeff Price? Yes. He's been in Dubai for a very long time. So Jeff Surely. and I worked at the station. He'd been my, my brother from another mother for a very long time. Um, so Jeff, I was on holiday see my, fa- my family in the West Indies. He said, Dave, you better get back. They've all left. And they've left people behind who are trying to steal stuff from a station. So they left spies who are taking music and trying to smuggle equipment out to start a new radio station. And it was successful and left a guy behind as station manager who was basically funneling all this stuff out and so nobody could stop him. So I came back and I, I asked Jeff. I asked a lady who called Vicky White, who was like a newsreader. I asked a guy called Garrick... Um, Garrick Southgate, no, that's the England manager. Uh, it'll, it'll kick me. Anyway, Garrick, uh, the four of us, I took us to the Ajman Kempinski Hotel, sat us down for a coffee, and I said, if we don't step up, there'll be no radio station because the other side wanted to kill us. They basically wanted to ruin a radio station and launch their own thing, and they brought in Def Leppard to do the, 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 the big launch concert and so on. I said, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to talk to the station, to the owner of the station. We're going to tell him what's happened. And I need you guys to st- take over your department and keep the station running. So Jeff, who was a presenter, same as me, you're in charge of programs. Garrick, who was an assistant in the production, you're in charge of all production. And Vicky, who is a newsreader, you're in charge of all news. Bring in staff, do whatever you need to do. And I'll, I'll be station manager and I'll manage the whole thing. So we did that until the cavalry arrived and we saved the station during that time. And we didn't know until we got into that position, the guys who had left had told the uh, advertising world, we've got something bigger. Don't spend any money with that radio station. When you see what we've got, it will be all singing, all dancing. And we took all the top presenters with them. I won't mention my names because it's unfair. So we took all the presenters with them to start this new radio station. And we had no no, um, revenue coming in. But because we kept the station going for three months until the cavalry arrived, these advertising companies had to turn around and say, you know what, we've got toothpaste campaign that's got to go out there. We've got to put it somewhere. And we've got this other campaign. These have to go somewhere. We were going to put it on Channel 4. Let's just put it on Channel 4. Because we we were expecting the station to, to crash down. And I kept it afloat and kept it going with my small team. So we launched 
we we, we relaunched ourselves. We kept the, the, the whole thing going. And there's one guy in particular. I won't mention his name on this podcast because it's not fair. Um, but um, he was a guy who had a huge personality and everybody loved him. Um, but he was a really hard guy to play with because he had a huge ego, but he was very, very talented. And he was a chess piece that they were trying to get to leave and we were trying to get to keep because if he'd gone across, everyone would have said, Channel 4 is a different station. By keeping him on board, and I literally, I mean, I threw restaurants at him for free meals. We sent him off to go to holidays where he could just sun himself and do broad. We had everything laid on to just fight this one particular game until the radio station survived and we kept the station alive. The other radio stations, um, which I won't mention my name because it's unfair for people who have it on their CV, but they were starved of new revenue. And so eventually they closed and certain personnel got reintegrated and then they, they opened up what became actually Virgin FM in in in, in Dubai and it took over in 92 and so on and created a, a very successful and amazing radio network. But the history, which I won't share because I still live in Dubai, apart from sharing with you, no names mentioned, was absolutely incredible. Not too dissimilar to the challenges that we've seen recently with January the 6th um, and saying more about politics. But well, that whole yeah. thing that we've been through, I went through several times. So the BBC story allowed me to, to go to Dubai, have untold experiences and the me that's right here in front of you would never have happened if I'd stayed in the UK. If you, if the BBC had turned around and said, Dave, we love you, let's let's look after you and maybe fast track you, I would have hit a brick wall after a while. 30 years, I would have been a senior produ producer, maybe a TV presenter, but probably on a few shows that no longer get run. And I would have had myself maybe put out to pasture, like most of the people in broadcasting, wondering what's happened to my career. Now, I do what I want, when I want, don't care, happy days. So it all works out in the end. Incredible. I, I remember, I think, 2006, Dave, uh, being in Dubai and seeing a stage show, a hypnosis show that you were doing there. Um, you were also doing life designers at the time. Uh, mm. So you had moved into NLP, you'd moved into hypnosis, and you were, you know, doing that type of entertaining. It was, it was mesmerizing. It was, it was next level stuff for Dubai at that time. Thank you. It was ahead of its time to go from being, well, it's a natural transition from being a DJ in a nightclub to then becoming a cabaret, which is what my stage hypnosis became. So the stage hypnosis and the hypnosis bit led me into being a therapist. If you can hypnotize people to, to get them to do crazy stuff, why not stop them smoking, help them lose weight, deal with stress? So that became that. And so when I was doing a stage hypnosis show in Dubai, Dubai is very... Dubai is all about saving face. Nobody wants to look stupid in Dubai. So I had some hypnosis shows, but some people came to me and said, Dave, before you start your show going, and you look for volunteers out of the audience, you talk about how your mind works. And it's fascinating. Could you come and talk to my company and tell everybody how their minds work? I went, so you want the beginning of a show, but not the show? Yes. Will you pay me the same money? Yes. Oh, happy days. So that became my motivational speech teaching people how your brain works. And after a while, I just swapped over and just did the hypnosis. So the life designers was an extension of that whole, if you're going to show people how their minds work and you can do hypnosis and all the rest of it, why not go down that route? And so here's another claim to fame, Mike, but sorry, MJ, that I've never shared with anybody, but here we go. I created a CD at the time called Now That's Why I Call Hypnosis. And it went, and do you remember Now That's Why I Call Music? 
which was a series of CDs that were out at the time, all compilation CDs of a, of a chart hits. That was a big thing worldwide at the time. So those guys licensed me to do a hypnosis session where I dropped people into hypnosis and took them on a journey and I played music. And it's a, it a really interesting fantasy experience for people in hypnosis. Now, I, I, I released that. And it was a bestseller in the, the region, but it never took off because it was too far ahead of its time. Now, everyone calls it guided meditation. Yes. And everybody does it. But I did it 20 plus years before anybody else. And right. it's not frustrating, but it would have been a billion dollar industry if somebody had gone, actually, that's a really good idea. Dave, come bring your stuff. And I did attempt it a couple of times, taking it to Disney as much as everything else. But it's really hard to talk to Disney because they have a thing called, um, um, I mean, they've got the brain trust, but you can't talk to Disney until you work for Disney because they get sued by loads of people about ideas. So unless you are part of Disney and they've got the brainiest people on the planet working for them, you can't have a conversation with them. So I hit a brick wall, and uh, so there we go. So that's why I've got a CD there, and everyone's selling guided meditation CDs. Uh, well, not even CDs, just uh, downloads, and uh, and there you go. And from that, you segued into doing events where some of your events have been broadcast to over a billion people. You're a headliner for conferences. You did this spectacular show during the pandemic of the toilet paper diaries with Ernesto. And today um, you're you're you've created the industry icon program um, to help CEOs, politicians and the likes to take their game a bit bigger and further and faster. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. It's very kind. I've got two things. I've got the game changers and I've got the industry icon. The industry icon is is direct mentoring, one to one mentoring. But it's not just it's not just to, to help politicians and, and big hitters do well. They're the ones that pay me. I'm all about making everybody do better. So I put enough content on social media that if anybody um, decides that they want to look past a guy who looks like Morgan Freeman's fat little brother and starts looking at the content I'm putting out there, they'll realize that there's a load of stuff that they can use to help themselves. So um, it's really about the idea, and it works on several different levels. Let me see if I can share it with you. With, with or, uh, Morgan Freeman's fat little brother. Did you really say that? I just did, and I'm more than happy to stand by it because it's almost true. Um, apart from the fact Morgan Freeman might sue me and say that we're not related, which <laughs> is fair enough as well. So yeah. the idea is that there's three areas or four areas that you should really be looking at uh, about how to get yourself to being in a really strong position. And these are about, first of all, understanding that you've got your branding, your personal brand, the way that people recognize you, your ability to speak and communicate through social media and on stages, getting your mindset right. So you realize that you get over imposter syndrome, thinking I'm not good enough and I can do all this stuff. And maybe people want to hear what I've got to say. And the fourth part is multiple income streams. Because when you work this properly, you're able to do a ton of things that most people can't do to be able to create this incredible level of success. So if I share with you now, I'll go and open up here because I wasn't planning on sharing it in this particular session, but I'm more than happy to do so now. So we're talking about ultimately this, which I'm just creating on Canva. It's the first time I've shared it with anybody. So uh, speaker income streams would include, in fact, I'll probably do this. Is that going to make it bigger? Wait for it. Wait for it. Well, hey, there you go. Front and center. I didn't know I could do that. Um, so as a speaker, um, 
we do live events and you host and you do keynotes and panels and expertise uh, as, as, an, as, as uh, you know, uh, somebody who talks about what they know really well. But then you've got coaching and mentoring, which you can see there um, in the yellow here. And then you've got membership sites, which is helping people to understand exactly um, how to grow as a community. You've got your brand here. Uh, you've got products and services, joint ventures and, fully charged. and, and affiliate sales. But all these things are extra income streams that most people don't know about, but you can add to the whole thing. So with that, you can look at creating tribes, which is part of your membership, podcasts and TV shows, which are wonderful marketing. But also when you do them properly, they allow you to understand that you can then get sponsored and sponsored for other things, for events, for, for, for being an ambassador, for clothing or for, for using laptops or a certain phone. Then you've got meetups they can do in residencies. So if you look at the likes of, for instance, um, uh, Madonna, or, or I think Madonna's done it. Certainly uh, Celine Dion has done it. And I know that Elton John, they've done residencies in Vegas where people come along and, and, and they go for that experience because you're based in one place. Then you've got sales coaching to help people to make more money in their own business. You've got your own book that you can produce and get out there. Seminars and retreats, so taking people away for a weekend or even doing webinars and seminars online. Then you've got online courses. You've got organizing other events. You've got mastermind groups. You've got creating content for yourself and other people. And then you've got licensing your products and systems. These are all amazing ways of being able to, to do stuff just by being a speaker. And so these are some of the things I share with people. You know, part of growing your brand is, is being able to do this effectively. And so my industry icon program and Game Changers is all about how you get to do this. And I think this is a battleground that everybody should be considering. Whether you've got a job or you haven't got a job or you're looking for a job, you should also be growing your brand because you never know when that's going to change. And as more people are working from home remotely, they really need to consider that maybe you can work for several different companies at the same time. And if you do lose your job and people are finding you online and finding you on LinkedIn, are you just putting your CV there? Or are you producing content that positions you as an industry expert? And in my opinion, these are the things that people should be really considering. Does, does the world need new speakers? The world has speakers anyway. If you look at anybody who posts anything online, whether it's pictures of their dinner or they talk about how upset they are about something and so on, I think that that is a form of new speaking, digital speaking and communication. So, for instance, the, the biggest hitter on TikTok uh, is, is that guy from Africa who's got like 140 million followers, doesn't say a single word. But as far as everyone's concerned, they're obsessed with following him because quite clearly he's the most is the biggest influencer probably in the world, apart from the likes of the Kardashians and so on. So speaking isn't just about speaking, it's about a form of communication. And that could be through writing a book, it could be through doing podcasts, it's a number of different things. But I think the most effective way of doing it is to go on and speak in front of a live audience. Um, but there's no reason why you can't scale it. So for instance, uh, your podcast will have what 10,000, a hundred thousand views. People will watch it and will start to, this is a speaking event, but it's something that didn't really exist so much before the pandemic because people just wanted to see face-to-face. -face. COVID hasn't disappeared, but people have opened up to being remote and they have opened up to lots of different ways of getting entertainment. That's why Netflix's um, stock has uh, has gone down dramatically as people get outside and they, they have different ways of enjoying their media. So speaking, I think, has lots of different ways. And uh, the reason for sharing that particular diagram with you is because these are this is a breakdown of what speaking really means. That's just a really, really helpful for anyone that 
would th ever thought about teasing the fact. And of course, people can reach out to you to find out more about your programs and get your mentoring because today really that's that's where you really spend your time is helping others. Yeah, it's simple. Go to speakonstage.com and uh, all the details about working with the, with me are there. Or just find me on any social media. I tend to do more on LinkedIn than anything else because when you go on the other social media, it tends to be more about me, me, me. LinkedIn, when people see what it is that you do, they also know that in, in order to interact with you, there should be some kind of exchange of energy or finances. So rather than on Facebook, if I post something, people go, oh, go on, can I have it? If you post it on LinkedIn, people will ask the same question, but they're willing to invest in themselves to be able to do it. So that's why I tend to do um, LinkedIn uh, first and foremost. You're able to help people take their speaking ambitions to the next level to uh, raise their bar. They can get in touch with you. They can look at your content online and they can even be mentored by you through the Game Changers program or possibly even the Industry Icon program. Absolutely. I want to make as accessible for everybody. It's like years and years ago, there was a guy called Jamie Oliver, who's quite a well-known chef. He's a British, a British chef, and he he was like a pop star at the time. So he's a bit of a rebel. Um, he, I mean, there's a lot of chefs like that, Gordon Ramsay and so on. But imagine that he was a young Gordon Ramsay type character, and so he changed the face of cooking in the fact that when guys wanted to get together, they'd order in a takeaway, put on a DVD and, and some beers, and that would be a night in. He changed the relationship people had with cooking. So instead, if guys were going to have a night in, they'd get some ingredients in and they'd cook a meal. And they'd sit down to eat the meal and then have the beers, well, probably had the beers before then, and watch, watch the DVD. So it made it cool to cook. So my intention is to get everyone who's got a massive fear of public speaking, which is probably somewhere in the region of 90% of the world's population, to at least be able to communicate so they have a better chance to be able to get the job that they want, get the relationship that they want, get the promotion that they want, and also get that self-esteem issue where if something goes wrong, they stand up to be counted. We mentioned earlier about the fact that I was in a, I was, uh, I was, I was refused entry, or they gave me a very hard, uh, uh, hard time getting into a bar for lots of different reasons. We don't need to go into in this in this case, but because I'm a speaker and I'm very able to to phrase what I want to say, and I'm not worried about who my audience is, I called the manager. I told the manager about my experience and I called the hotel manager and I told him about my experience and I did a podcast to tell people what I'd been through so other people could speak up and also hold their ground if they ever had the same experience as me. And that only comes from the confidence that comes from being a speaker and the ability to be able to phrase what you need to say in a way that will effectively get the best out of people. I could have shouted, I could have got upset, I could have screamed and they would have said, what a nutter. Because I didn't raise my voice and I brought them over to me and I brought them into my world so they could understand how their world worked. I had the impact I wanted to make. And that only comes from an, a knowledge of speaking and a confidence and self-esteem that comes from being able to communicate effectively. It's not what you say that matters. It's what they hear that matters instead. Very interesting. I was just thinking about your daughter today. Or Would you say that she... You know, when, when we were kids and we spoke up, that we were that was called talking back. You know, you can't do that, and then you're you're upsetting everybody. Well, today we're calling that leadership. What about your daughter? Are are you thinking that she is starting to take some of the the kernels of wisdom from you and uh, step up to be on the speaker stage? Maya's already got it. 
she's already got it from a very early age. Um, I, I, I wanted to teach her how to have a sense of humor from a very early age. So we used to watch things like Little Britain and all the rest of it. And what from the age of when she was able to speak, which is about the age of two, I taught her one lesson. And that was, if you believe in something strong enough and mummy and daddy don't agree with you and any teachers or anyone else doesn't agree with you, what do you say? And the answer was, they can kiss it. And the reason I wanted her to have that was exactly the point that you just made there, MJ. The fact that we grew up thinking the establishment has got our back and getting a credit card is because the bank wants to look after us. And all that rubbish that we got through different TV stations and radio adverts and all the rest of it. You've got to take a step back and say, this might be BS. And so when my, t when my daughter gets her report from school, and she's not a rebel, don't get me wrong, she, 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 she understands the dance of school the report is my way of knowing that she hasn't tried to sell drugs or stab anybody at school in fact i don't think i've ever read a single report that she's got from school my wife tells me what i need to know i just need to see a happy kid and the fact that she as she's getting positions of responsibility like being the, the 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 student representative and the house representative at sports she gets all these kind of positions which means that she's winning the battle of the playground because you and I know that the, the, the interaction that happens in a playground is just as important as what happens in school, if not, in my opinion, more. When you come out having emotional intelligence and knowing how to get on with everybody and understanding the most powerful person in any group is the one that's most flexible and able to talk to anybody in that group, that allows you to know that... Um, that's the direction you should be going in. You should be understanding people, making contact with people, making friends, and being able to understand what's, what's their special source, what's the thing that they want out of life. Because one of the key things, and you know this with your podcast, I know this with my career as well, is it doesn't matter what we think. Nobody cares about Dave Crane. Nobody cares about Coach MJ. They only care about what's in it for them. What can they get from watching this particular podcast or video show? And what can that do to make their lives better? If you have that front and center of your interactions with everybody, then you can deliver. And that's true for relationships with your partner, with your colleagues, with your clients. What do they get out of it? Not what do you want to give them? Are they getting what they want? If the answer is yes, then there's your answer. And the reason that customers stay with you longer is because... People will leave you and not work with you again, not because you're expensive, but because you didn't make them feel special. The minute you stop making your customers and your clients feel special is the minute they go somewhere else and pay more money for the same service, but it makes them feel better. That's why when you go to Starbucks, you pay three or four times what you would do for a cup of coffee, but it's got your name on it. And you go, ah, oh, that's special. That's, that's made specially for me. Dave Crane, the game changer. The Industry Icon Program. Thank you so much, sir, for being on today's The Real Mission Impossible. You've inc overcome incredible hurdles. Uh, you have masterminded your own destiny, and today you're helping others create their own. Thank you so much, sir. Bless it's been an honor. Thank you so much, MJ, and more power to you in this incredible podcast that you're doing. Having worked with you and having seen you in action, anybody who doesn't connect with you directly, follow you on social and actually hire your services to help them, coach them to levels of success, is missing the whole point. And I wish you all the very best for the future. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, sir.